Greetings book lovers everywhere. I'm E-Train and welcome to E-Train Talks, where I discuss everything books in the hopes that others will be inspired to love reading as much as I do. And today is a great day. Why is it a great day, you ask? Because today I'm joined by Carrie Firestone, middle grade author, an environmental and social justice activist, teacher, and mom. Carrie's written four books, including two of my all-time favorites, Dress Coded, and her novel coming out in July, The First Rule of Climate Club. The two books with two powerful messages. Dress Coded is described by the New York Times as a much needed reminder that some fights are worth fighting. And I believe this is so true. With that said, I'm so honored to be joined by Carrie Firestone today. She's an environmental activist and author fighting with actions and her words for what she believes in. That's just the definition of what I want to do when I grow up. So I'm so delighted to be joined by Carrie Firestone today. Carrie, welcome to E-Train Talks. Hello, E-Train, and thank you so much for having me. I've, I've been so excited to follow your work and your passion for books, and I'm just happy to be here with you in your book room. Well, I do have a very bookish room, and I'm just, I'm super excited to just kind of get into the whole, like, just all that you do, because I'm passionate about all the topics that you're passionate about, climate change, dress codes. I think that a lot needs to change, and I'm excited to hear your opinions and thoughts. Great, let's go. <laughs> yeah, so let's get into the first question. So as you probably know, I'm a pretty avid reader, and having read a lot, I can tell you that I am so happy that you wrote both Dress Coded and The First Rule of Climate Club because the protagonists were podcasters using social media to promote what they love and to share their opinions about important topics. And that's my goal as a literacy advocate. But more importantly, because you wrote about such relevant social and environmental topics in a way that middle grade can enjoy and learn from, I know that I enjoyed Dress Coded and The First Rule of Climate Club. So will you share why you decided to write for middle graders over other audiences? Yeah, so um, I started writing for young adult readers. I have two YA books. Um, and, and I started writing for YA because I found my high school journals. Oh. And, and, and I may um, be adding some advice nuggets through this conversation. So one of them is if you have journals and you're journaling, keep every journal even, even if they're cringy. <laughs> um, because I found them and I had wrapped them in duct tape. So I had to unwrap all these journals and sit down in my closet on the floor and read. And I was like, wow, this is cringy, but this is a strong teen voice. So my first books, you know, were basically my own voice and, you know, using it to, to push forward stories. But then um, the middle grade demographic came, I think from two things. Number one, you know, I was an avid middle grade reader. I mm -hmm. loved reading. I was just immersed in the 70s and 80s books of my time. And I really think I internalized those books and they helped me um, kind of deal with life at, as a kid. So that voice was there. But then I was driving a minivan full of middle graders. <laughs> You know, I had kids, I had my, my daughter was in middle school when I started dress coded. And so conversations I was listening to in the back of my minivan were, were um, kind of igniting a, a passion in me to find ways to address issues like girls being dress coded in an accessible way that young people could relate to. So, but I think for me, um, I just have, you know, I think those of us who are storytellers, it's hard to know who that character is going to be next. We kind of have to have to just go with it and, and hope they come out and shine on the page. And your character certainly shined out on the page, Mary Kay and Molly. And I think that the middle grade audience is kind of perfect for dress code in the first rule of climate club. And not just because it takes place at Fisher Middle School, but also because Middle graders are some of the most passionate kids I've met. I mean, we're just kids and we can do a lot because, and it's also a sort of in-between zone. It's in-between young adult. Like you're not really an adult yet. You're still kind of figuring things out, but you're also at a point where you, you're independent. You're growing to become independent. And you're, you, have, you now have immersed opinions. You have new opinions about certain topics. So I think that, your characters in the First Rule of Climate Club and Dress Coded, they were still learning about the whole politics, dress code, that whole 
just that whole variety of opinions. But they were really, they were still smart enough. They were independent and they were doing something. And that just proves that middle graders can do a lot. So that's why I love reading middle grade books, especially books about topics like dress codes and climate change, because it really inspires me to do more because us middle graders, we can do a lot. We just don't get enough credit. So I think that books that you write, um, they really kind of inspire us to change, to motivate, they motivate us to change. Yes. And thank you so much for saying that. And, you know, speaking to that, it, I sometimes think in our society, we we're bookended by these really powerful people, right? We have kids on one end and we have elderly people on the other end who have wisdom and insight in so many different ways and different perspectives. And yet sometimes they're dismissed or sometimes they're pushed aside and then, you know, and just said, you know, just told to go sit in the corner and have a cupcake. But if we harness that power and that wisdom and that insight, you know, we can just exponentially expand our good work. And so with kids, I think um, it's about providing accessible ways to do it because, you know, sometimes kids want to do things, but they haven't had the experience yet. But it's also understanding that in addition to your insight and your perspective on things that can be fresh and um, powerful and interesting, we also have to recognize that kids don't have so-called power in society and so may be prone to anxiety. And so I think as adult writers, we have to try to figure out how to make it clear that there's a lot of hope here. You know, there's a lot of stuff we can do as individuals and as groups um, to affect change at all ages, but, you know, we don't have to serve you gloom and doom and, and, and then not give you any ways to solve it because that sets kids up for anxiety. So I think we have to be very careful as writers um, and people talking about these things to provide um, a, a healthy balance of like, okay, stuff is happening. We clearly see that. We're not going to hide you under the covers and pretend it's not, but we're also going to give you tools to empower you so you're not stuck with this information with nowhere to go, if that makes sense. That does make sense. And I think that um, while we talk about the protagonists, the kids, I think that the parents in Dress Code and the First Show of Climate Club, they're the kind of parents that we need. They're supportive and they're like, keep going, you can do this. So they really empowered the protagonists, the main characters in Dress Coded and the First Show of Climate Club because they're there for them. And they understand that kids can do a lot. And while yeah, there are really big things going on in the world. They, we, we, can do, we can do something. We're not just kids, we're intelligent and we've watched the world. We've, we've been around for 10, 12 years. We've seen the stuff that's going on. Exactly. So I think that your stories are really empowering and I'm very grateful that, you're, that you wrote such just wow factor books. Well, thank you. And the main characters in Dress Coded and the First Rule of Climate Club use social media to spread their message of equality and change. How can we as readers do the same? So social media is obviously an interesting monster. Um, <laughs> and I think just like all monsters, there are good, we can use it for good or evil. <laughs> so I think with social media, um, the important thing is to, is to go into it knowing we're using it as a tool. We're not using it as a, you know, a way to, sometimes we do waste our time or you know, relax with it, but when we're using it for these kinds of things, it's our tool, so we have to have a strategy. So a strategy isn't just, let me get on and rant. A strategy isn't, you know, let me just um, you know, complain and then see how many people like it to, to agree with me. Um, and so, so we have to kind of go into it with that idea. The other piece is we need to know our social media lane. So for me, I have no idea how to use Instagram. Um, I really don't know how to use Twitter. And so I don't tend to use those and I have never even been on TikTok. So I don't tend to use all of these, all of these different things. You can't do it all. I mean, some people can, but they're very skilled. So I've chosen Facebook because most of my active work is at, in my town and it's with people in my demographic. So I use Facebook to raise money, 
to get people to go to rallies, to get people to go to meetings, to get people to go to forums, um, to have conversations that are very difficult happening in our town, um, and to share inspiration. And you know, so so my my tool of choice is Facebook because I know my my group. Um, so I think it's about figuring out what you're trying to do here. Like for me, it's just community stuff that needs to be shared and and enhanced. Um, for you, it might be global, right? So you might need to use Twitter or a different um, modality. And then to have a plan, like am I, am I, am I gonna um, prepare my posts or at least have a sense of posts? Do I know when the algorithms are? I know on Facebook, if you post a certain time of day, you're gonna yeah. get more people to see it. You know, so do your research and really be a professional person in terms of how you're using this and not just, you know, a random ranter because that's really not gonna help you with your work. It might help you get followers. Followers love that, right? They love the drama, they love, but it's not gonna help you with your work. I hope that makes sense. It does make a lot of sense. I 100% understand that. And that's what I always like to preach to um, the people that I interviewed, the classes that I, um, share my my work with because social media can be a really dangerous place and you really need to be smart about it like I found myself on the right side of social media uh, that's also a play on words because it's the right side um, <laughs> but I think that you also really need to be smart because like I think with Facebook my mom also uses it to for the same reasons that you do you like you have a demographic like what I do, Twitter is really global. Instagram, I don't use it as much, but it can also be global. So I think that um, you really need to understand the consequences of your actions if something does go wrong. Um, so I think yeah. that what you're doing using Facebook, like you, everybody who you who follows you, they're in your demographic. They agree with you. So that so that can really like that can inspire change because like you're doing something. You're promoting fundraisers. You're doing social justice groups, you're just, you're doing a lot to help. So I think you really need to be smart about it, like what you said. And while I, um, the, ag the algorithms are also helpful, but you should also use the algorithms, not just to gain followers, but also to know, like, to just um, kind of promote change in a sense. Like, um, for instance, yeah, posts might get more likes at this time, but it'll also inspire change more at this time. So I think that, yeah, what you said is just perfect. It really is. So hats off to you. You're basically explaining what's on my mind. Well, good, thanks. And like, for, for example, you know, there was after the Puerto Rican hurricane, my local group um, did a lot of work, you know, trying to get furniture for families who had apartments, but they had no furniture. So it was like, okay, I'm gonna wait till nine o'clock and I'm gonna be like, all right, if you have furniture, post it here. I'm going to make a list. I'm going to figure out what fits in what house. You know, it's a lot of logistical stuff, but yeah. if you're able, if you can figure it out, then it's really a powerful tool. Um, I, I will say also I, on Twitter, I mostly like to follow people. Mm -hmm. And, and so I get to learn what they're doing in their communities and their world. And I follow, it's hard because it's hard for me to do everything. And so I do a lot yeah. more work with following environmental people than with following book people. Yeah. And that means yes. I'm not connecting as much with book people because I just can't do it all. So you have to kind of choose what's working for you. And it could be two months from now, I'll have, you know, taken a break and I'll be following book people more so I can catch up on my reading. You know, it's very fluid. You can do whatever you want, but you control the narrative. And, you know, I see a lot of young people who are just trying to get people to acknowledge them or like them or make them yeah. feel valued on social media. And that is just not, that is just always going to be, you know, a dead mm -hmm. end because it's not going to work as we know. So, yeah. Yeah. That make that I a hundred percent agree. And also, I also haven't tried TikTok. So I don't know that whole algorithm kind of thing. Yeah. So um, I'm afraid for that beep. I don't know how to make it go away. So hopefully. <laughs> that's okay. Okay. Um, was it easier to write the first book in the Dress Coded series or the sequel? So it was easier to write Dress Coded because I had had an incident with, with an administrator and um, I was listening to young people talk about their experiences and talking to more and more people. I was getting very annoyed. And I would say most of my projects start with a feeling, mm -hmm. either grief or you know hope. Or, and this one started with anger. So I just started writing 
And it was one of those ones that just poured out of me and it was easy to build the cast. And I, I think it was easy. Climate Club was more difficult because the issues are, you know, with dress coded, it's one issue. Yeah. In a bigger realm of like, you know, misogyny and feminism and things like mm. that. But with Climate Club, it was climate change and social justice. Yes. Like how much bigger could you get? <laughs> so I had to figure out how am I going to do, do this right? And like, how do I, nobody, you know, climate change is so overwhelming to people. They shut down. How am I going to put that in a book? So it took time to just figure out how to bring it to a, a level where people could um, even identify with it. You know, I knew I wasn't going to do polar bears. I was going to keep it local because yeah, the work locally, but that took time to just take walks and stand around and think and listen and read and, you know, get to that. But then the other problem with Climate Club was I wanted to keep the cast of, of Dress Coded somewhat, but I also needed a new protagonist and who was that going to be? And is it going to still be Molly, but she's going to ninth grade, you know? So it was a lot of kind of having conversations with my characters and trying to get them to tell me where to go with this story. Yeah, and I think that you did a really good job with Climate Club. And I, it's really inspiring and motivating and it's also really true because you may not really realize that there's climate change, there's climate stuff going on in our communities and there's uh, social justice problems in our communities, but it can really give you a new perspective about all these issues. Like, and also while you didn't add polar bears, you did add bears. So you yeah, added bears. some sort of bears. Yeah, I'm looking out my window. It's quite possible a bear could wander by because we have a lot of bears in my town. So anyway, um, that, that's aside from the point, the bears, but I think that, I, I, I really think that Dress Coded and Climate Club, they're both beautiful and they're both about topics that I know that a lot of people are passionate about, like feminism, social justice, and also, they're also just a huge scale, like there's so many little points that you can add inside of climate change, like, oh, you have, yeah, um, there's greenhouse gases, the there's like high there's a lot of heat going on ice caps are melting all the, and all these little points inside of one big scale so I'm like how do you do it <laughs> you just did an amazing job and I was captivated throughout the entirety of your entire of your series dress coded and climate club which is coming out in July everybody you need to pre-order it thank you and I, I, I have to say thank you because you, you wrote what's on my mind. You do a really good job with that because, and also I learn a lot. Like I'm passionate about a subject, but I'm also learning a lot. It really felt like nonfiction. It's realistic fiction. So it's supposed to, but also it's just true. And some realistic fiction pieces, they're like, they're more fiction than nonfiction, even though they're realistic fiction. But you kind of found that point where it's honestly the most real thing ever because everything that's happening, it's real. And you also added, you didn't just add, oh, kids are doing amazing things, but they're also feeling the feelings that we all feel. You made it, you made it real. And like, because we all feel climate anxiety. We're all like, what, like seeing all these news reports about oh, the, the water levels are going to rise higher than the Statue of Liberty in 50 years. All of these reports, they can really take a toll on you. So you added that part of Climate Club and you just made it feel so real. And I, I'm just, wow, you did a really good job with that. Really good. Well, thank you. And I think part of the reason it feels real is because um, a lot of the stories that from both books come from real people. Like when I wanted to do the climate justice piece because I really don't feel like we can even begin to look at climate change without looking at social justice things and climate justice and how um, poor communities and communities of color are, are exponentially more affected by climate change and also you know we're putting incinerators in neighborhoods where mm -hmm. um, people are ha feeling the effects um, straight on and so I couldn't just have the suburban community trying to tackle climate change, but I needed to figure out how to do that. And so I had to interview a lot of people. So a lot of the little nuanced stories and including the, the young woman whose um, friend is, well, I guess I can say it, Mary Kate's friend is sick in the book, Lucy, that all came from real people. 
and real stories and real interviews. So I think that's probably why I do a lot of my um, book research as um, like a journalist mm-hmm. doing interviews with people before I start writing. Yeah, I think that um, interviewing people like what I'm doing, I'm also I'm interviewing people to help me with my book because I you're inspiring me as well, like because I want to write a climate change book and I have and I have all of these different authors with all these different perspectives. And now I finally made it to you and you've done what I want to do. So I'm just I'm in awe of you, like just really. Oh, well, thank you. And I'm glad to know you're also a writer because sometimes readers aren't writers, writers aren't readers, but the fact that you're now working on this, you know, you're doing everything you need to do to get to that point, which is the 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 key to success in, yeah. in anything, right? You you mm-hmm. just you're tenacious and you're doing your work in many different ways. So keep going. You're gonna get there. Thank you. And I'm, here as, I'm here as a tool. Yeah, thank you for that. And speaking of research, I'm a huge fan of realistic fiction, which is another reason why I enjoy reading your books so much. And the topics in your stories, as I said, they're so true. And there's just enough fiction to make them fun and entertaining. But there's also that nonfiction part of it, which makes it informative and educational and just true in general. So what resources did you use for research when writing the Dress Coded series? So I already touched on this a little, but I I would say my first resources were human resources mm-hmm. because I used lots of young people's interviews and I, I talked to people about what it felt like to be, to be a black student who has to take a bus to a, another town to go to school and what that racial dynamic felt like. And, you know, so I interviewed lots of different people. So human resources are my first go-to. But then I read a ton of climate stuff and I've been reading climate stuff since I was in college, but I needed to really understand. And I think um, the best book I read was this book called Drawdown, which kind of really um, draws a picture of each issue, what we're doing to cause climate change and then how to fix it. So that was really helpful. Um, But then I wanted to look at what kinds of things we're doing in my community to cause climate change. So where I live in Connecticut, it's transportation, it's consumption, like just buying too much stuff, it's food waste. So I tried to figure out what was what were the big culprits in my community and then mirror that in the book because um, you know, we need we need to, we needed something authentic. And the same with dress coded. Like I interviewed so many people who told me really difficult, painful stories about their dress coding experiences. And basically every single dress coding experience in that book was from a real person. Wow. Yeah. And also this is a side question, but can we use the hashtag dress coded on Instagram and social media to share our stories? Oh, absolutely. That would be really powerful. Wow. Being dress coded, you guys have to check that out. I think it's so inspiring. All these different stories about dress codes. Like you think it's, oh, it's, it's realistic fiction. It's not real, but it is real and it's relevant. These dress code scenarios are actually happening. So everybody go to Instagram being dress coded. The page is led by Leora Tannenbaum, a friend of Carrie Firestone and check out all of their posts because it, they're just so inspiring and 10 out of 10 Instagram page. Tell Laura I said that. I will. Thank you. She'll and pre- now on to my next question. So I read that you're a passionate environmental activist and also social justice activist. So what sparked your work as an activist and at what point in your life were you like, yes, I want to do this? I was thinking about this because I've always been an activist. I mean, it, it takes different forms, right? Like sometimes- yeah quiet activism and sometimes it's quite vocal mm-hmm. like recent things that have happened in in, in my community um but I st- I think the first thing that really excited me about kind of doing something in the world was when I was probably seven or eight and went on a trip to Cape Cod and there was a store that had um bumper stickers about saving the animals and I think it was Greenpeace um information and I don't and I and I remember being like wow this is something you know people are out trying to help the animals i need to know more about this because remember this was the 70s or 80s and we didn't have internet so something like that was so new to me and so it was very exciting 
Um, and then moving forward in high school, my dad was a big advocate for Vietnam veterans and mm -hmm. veterans coming home from Vietnam, dealing with lots of mental health issues. And so I got into testifying on behalf of their children who had had um, health effects due to Agent Orange poisoning in Vietnam. So I learned how to advocate on behalf of others, you know, just by helping my dad with his work. And then, you know, over time, I've, I've worked on a lot of things with regard to environmental, you know, things, including my hometown that has a lot of contamination. So I was like a one person, um, you know, um, army trying to fight contamination that had been done by a gun factory in my town. That didn't go so well. There are a lot of failures there. And then that helped me understand why did it fail? What was I doing? How do I do it better? And, um, you know, so, so I think activism is just um, basically um, the practical using your using your um, your passion for a purpose and just putting it into practice. And so whatever that thing is that you really care about, figuring out how to do it, um, how to how to apply that to your community. Wow, I had no idea that your work as an activist was sparked at such a young age, and you're still going and you're doing amazing things. I really got to say. So, um, as like before social media, there was there were still activists, and while they weren't as publicly known, they were still doing the best that they can. Because now, of course, we have the internet. We have all like sometimes tweets go viral, um, per, say, like promoting activism, but. Back then, there were no viral tweets. There were no social media, YouTube videos. So, like, yeah. there wasn't a lot you could do except maybe go to court about something. But a little went a long way, and now here we are today. There's so many activists fighting for what they believe in. Yeah, and I think there have always been activists. In fact, my work yeah. right now is researching um, activists of the 19, early 1910s. So learning, I mean, this was a real convergence of like, um, you know, feminism trying to get the right to vote and um, people trying to get fair wages. The labor movement was going, you know, strong and women's health and pacifism, like all these things were happening. And so I, it's fascinating to see how people without even the tools I that I had at my disposal were able to get the word out through pamphlets, through women would use cookbooks because they knew other women were buying cook cookbooks. So they put subversive messages about the vote in their cookbooks, you know? So, so humans have always been creative in their activism and have always found ways to spread the word and bring people into living rooms and sit them down and talk about it and then go to the next town and talk to that living room. And, um, you know, so I guess the, the point is, when we're passionate about something and we know some intrinsically something needs to change, we can find a way and we can find a creative way. And also activists, many of the activists in those days were authors and artists and musicians and people who were able to communicate um, change through their art, which is a, such a powerful thing. Yeah, I think that any anybody can be an activist if you um, fight against, like fight for what you believe in whether it's through your music or through passionate memoirs or just through painting. You can be an activist as long as you fight for what you believe in. That's kind of what being an activist is all about. Being active about a topic, about an important topic, a relevant topic that you're passionate about. And I think that that's just is so important because we all have something to say and maybe we can't exactly say the words that we that we think but we can paint them we can dream them we can play the piano and we can like ebony and ivory by stevie wonder and paul mccartney it was a song that broke barriers absolutely you're you're so spot on in fact that's one way young people can really you know make their voices heard um and and figure out what's your art what's your what's your form of communication? And I will say that I've, I've been around a lot of high school kids now getting ready for college and a lot of them wanna work on environmental stuff. And I've said, look, you don't have to major in environmental studies. You can major in literally anything, but 
through your work, make sure you're, you're looking through the lens of social justice, through the lens of environmental work, you know, so, so everybody is working on this together in different ways. Um, and I always say to people like stay in your lane, if you're, you know, a, you know, a, a, a mom on the PTO, like many of my friends, you can still do this work. In <laughs> fact, it's, it's very significant to do this work through what activities are you hosting? How are you making them equitable? Who are you including? You know, I always tell the story of I was teaching my daughter's third grade, fourth grade class how to write books. So the whole year I was the room mom, but basically we just did writing every every week and it was awesome. And they finished with books at the end of the year. And one day it, on Earth Day, I said, okay, everybody, I'm bringing in a really special treat. It's going to be awesome. It was made by a special mom. She put a lot of time into this and effort. So I want you to make sure you, you know, appreciate the treats. So I come in on Earth Day. I have the treats. Everybody's excited for this special treat. I open up the bag and it's carrots and apples. Like not even peeled carrots, just carrots and apples. My daughter, I thought my daughter was going to kill me. <laughs> mom, I'm like, Mother Earth was the special mother. She created these things for us. And my daughter's like, mom, we thought it was going to be like special cupcakes. And I said, yeah, but Lauren, this is how we teach that like you can still enjoy a snack without having all that packaging and plastic and cupcake fake stuff. And sure enough, by the end of the day, the kids were all gnawing on the apples and carrots. So activism can look, you know, different in many different ways. Activism can, can be effective. Yeah, you can do, like, as you said, you can do anything in the world, but never lose that fire for what you're passionate about. And if you do lose that fire, it's time to move on. Yeah. Time to find a new passion. It's okay, but it's mm -hmm. time to let it go and move to the next thing. That's your, yeah. that's your, your spirit telling you, okay, it's, it's run its course. Yeah. So what's the most important message you'd like your readers to take away from your novels? I always say the same thing because I think all of my novels are sort of big picture yeah. issues that are brought to more accessible, you know, hopefully story. And I always say the same thing, which is I want my books to start conversations. So, you know, in Climate Club, a kind of a controversial thing happens. Um, and, and the whole town is like, is this, is this racism? What is this? Is it, you know, and, the, and, and that is a question to be discussed. With, with your book group, with your class, with your friends, because I, I, I'm not giving you the answers. I want you to think about it and talk about it. And I think that's the way we also affect change by sparking conversations that could be uncomfortable or difficult or controversial and seeing where we get you know, at the end. In fact, with Dress Coded, I've had um, multiple generations having conversations and sometimes it doesn't go so well, right? Because if yeah. you have a grandma saying, I think you should cover up. And I don't think it's a, you know, I think you're dressing like some expletive, you know, uh, you need to scale that back, have grandma read the book and then sit and discuss it and yeah. talk about why people feel this way and how deeply ingrained these things are in, in older people like me and how we have to start to un, unwrap all of that. And now I'm always looking for book recommendations and you gave me one already. But do you have any book recommendations for readers interested in learning more about social justice and environmental activism? So these questions are always hard for me because, you know, you get overwhelmed because there's so many books. Yeah. Like, what do I, where do I start? So I'm going to talk about a, like kinds of books. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to say, um, Haven Jacobs Saves the Planet by Barbara D. I don't know if you've gotten your hands on it yet, but it's not out till I think September. Um, but I was able to read an, an advanced copy and it's a really beautiful book that helps young people understand climate anxiety and how to similarly, like how to work with it in a way that's positive and productive. So Haven Jacobs Saves the Planet, it's coming out soon. And I highly recommend you put that on your radar. Um, I love books like Stamped by Kendi and Reynolds because Stamped, if you, you, you may know, has a little kid version, a, a like a teen version, and then an adult version. And we encouraged our, our town library to do a book series of book talks with all the versions with different age groups. And so it was really cool to see everybody kind of discussing this at different ages. Um, but it, it's about- um, One yes. sec, it's actually Jason Reynolds, everybody. Yes, Jason Reynolds and Ibram Kendi, right. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, but it, but it helps you understand the systemic piece of all this, you know, like how these are much bigger systems than, than just, we need to focus on one piece. We need to focus on the whole thing and, and we need to understand it deeply before we can figure out how to, how to make effective change. So um, books like that are, are really helpful. But when it comes to climate stuff, um, I love books like this, The Curious Garden by Peter Brown, because it's a picture book, but I read it all the time myself because it helps me see that like we can, we can, we can build something beautiful from nothing, from something unsightly um, as a community. And so I love these picture books like The Water Protectors as well that help inspire us. They're little pieces of inspiration to, to keep us going. But then also I love books like, you know, I, I pulled out National Geographic um, Backyard Birds. Like if we don't understand the, the flora and fauna and tiny little creatures and big creatures like bears in our neighborhoods and how they work together in an ecosystem, how are we supposed to save the planet? Yeah. So my, my suggestion is, you know, to, to get some binoculars and some bird books, figure out the birds in your community, who's endangered, who's not, who's preying on other creatures, what creatures do they need? Like really get to know your ecosystem. And or how- you can get board books about, Or you can get bird, um, board book, bird books. Absolutely, absolutely. We need to understand what, you know, our, our other creature friends, if we're going to try to protect them. Yeah. So I encourage those kinds of books. But let's just get out there, sit outside, figure out what this plant is, get a plant ID app on your phone and really learn about the plants and what's invasive, what's not, what's messing up our neighborhood, what can we plant more of, and then go from there. Start in your own backyard. That's, that's just so inspiring. I'll have to check out all the books that you recommended. Um, Stamped, which is a New York Times bestseller, a number one New York Times bestseller, um, Barbara D's new novel, which I have to, I'll ask Barbara D if I can have an advanced reader's copy and all the other picture books that you recommended because picture books, anybody can read picture books. And we always have to remember that. And they're always inspiring. They always are. And I like to think of picture books as, um, books, but they're also like songs in a way because they're songs of freedom, songs of acceptance, and also they rhyme. So they can just be actual songs. Yes, and they're books, you know, like yeah, they're books. the power of a picture book because we can read them over and over again. Sometimes, you know, there are a few, like if I'm sad or like this one, The Curious Garden, or if I'm feeling a little demoralized, I'll pick it up and it just gives me a little burst of joy and hope. That's what the best books do. Mm-hmm. And now to my next question. So what are some positive environmental changes you'd like to see implemented in the next 10 years? Well, first, I would like to say, I I think the biggest piece is cultural change, because we need to understand, you know, we're kind of wavering between, it's such a crisis, we're just going to not say or do anything because it's stressful, or it's such a crisis, we're going to demand massive changes without being part of really changing the culture. And when I say that, I thought about an example today I saw on the Today Show, where they're, they're saying, oh, it's going to be hot, 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 record temperatures, really terrible, you know, well, they don't really ever say terrible, but they say record temperatures, it's going to be brutal. And then the next trailer is basically find out how to spend less on gas this weekend. And it's like, we're, there's a, there's a cognitive disconnect, right? It's yeah. like, you're, you know, and then you're telling us how to go out and consume with all the sales and let's buy more clothes and let's buy more stuff. It's unsustainable. Yeah. So, the culture needs to understand, like we got it, we finally got people to, to understand that like plastic straws, not a good idea. Yeah. That, however that worked, whatever tipping point got people to pay attention to straws needs to happen to, excuse me, to ev- literally everything. And, <laughs> yeah. You know, I think, my, and I guess I'm interested in that because that's, I'm not a scientist, right? I'm more of a, of a social scientist and, and humanities person. So that's where my lane is to try to change the culture where we understand that like, okay, if you're upset about it being so hot, probably best to 
figure out how to conserve gas and maybe not travel so much. I mean, you know, cause there's so many mixed messages on media and on TV. And so that's one thing, but then, you know, community work where each community takes, for example, I'm the um, chair of our town's clean energy commission. Oh. We're looking at how do we as a community figure out how to be absolutely the most efficient community we can be by getting people to get their houses um, look audited to make sure they're not wasting energy and make our communities more walkable and bring in solar panels and you know try to get 100% renewable by a certain period of time. So if each, like I said, if we look at our backyards and our own like homes, we start there, but then we, then we move outward and we look at yeah. our neighborhood and then we look at our town and our city and our county and so um i'd like to have everybody getting in their lane whatever that looks like figuring out what your piece is working on changing the culture and then actually doing the work yeah because we're all pieces of a very 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 large puzzle and we all need to do our part to save the environment, not well, not necessarily even save the environment, save us in a sense, because the yeah. environment can flourish without us, but we can't flourish if we're killing the environment. Of course, the environment will survive, but we won't. So I think we need to really realize that not just, oh, in the now, like, oh, ice caps are melting, but they're not 100% melted. Think about the future. And while that it can be really scary to think about what will come in the future, you also have to realize that it's not just a fluke. It's not, we're not lying. These things are going to happen. And we need to accept that and not go, move backwards. We need to move forwards. We need to just understand that there are things going on. And if, we, if these things keep happening, the big thing is going to happen. And to put in the most simplest terms, we need to do our part. Yeah, and I think that, that's, that's really well said and, and, and spot on. And I think I try to say to people, like, it really comes down to one thing. And it's like, if you, if somebody, if you go to the doctor and you're super unhealthy and they're like, you're unhealthy, you need to go get healthy. It's like, okay, where do I even begin? Yeah. But, but, but we all know when the doctor's saying that to this particular patient, that the reason their entire bodies are fall bodies falling apart is because they're a heavy smoker. And our version of heavy smoking as a world is our addiction to, to fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. Like that's it. We can, you know, recycle as much as we want and we can try to do the best we can in our home. But if we don't come to terms with the fact that our entire species is addicted to fossil fuels, um, you know, it's like if the person goes home and says, okay, I'm going to eat more vegetables and I'm going to walk, you know, 10 miles a day. That's great. And that's helpful. Yeah. But smoking three packs a day, buddy, you know? And so it's really just coming to terms with this, admitting it, accepting it, knowing there's a whole, you know, you don't have to have fossil fuels to have a great life and world and then getting there. And sometimes that breaking an addiction can be very stressful. It can be. And I think that um, it's, it's, and that's kind of the simplest terms in a sense, because um, there are cigarettes that we're smoking or just or there's even a wider scale of that. But there's also we're we keep the lights on in all of our rooms, like a lot of people. And there's always two sides of an argument, unfortunately, like we should all be coming together to do our part and to stop climate change or at least like in our like because sure, in our communities, we're doing something. But like that's just a small part of the puzzle. Um, because if we save our communities, great, but we're not saving our town, we're not saving our county. So I think that we really need just, just to just understand that, like I said, like you said, we need to do our part and like, we're all pieces of a puzzle. So if you're, and we're also kind of like dominoes in a sense, if you're kind of, if you're smoking, um, then, and also like secondhand smoke, that might also hurt people. So then all the dominoes are gonna fall and we're right back where we started, trying to stack the dominoes back up, trying to create a domino train. If there's one thing that goes wrong, the whole thing's gonna collide and fall down. Yeah, and, and you, you've said it really well. And, and you know, we have to be realistic here and understand that the same forces that the tobacco companies use to convince everybody it wasn't a big deal, Fossil fuel companies are doing the same. And we have to kind of understand the, the Goliath we're up against 
and that we're not against each other, but they like to pit us against each other in order to forget that really they're the ones harming all of us. So it's these big picture things that we come to terms with and need to think about and grapple with. And, and I think we need to do it without guilt. That's my other thing. Guilt is a big problem because it makes you feel like, okay, I haven't done enough. So I'm just going to give up and go to McDonald's. Yeah. It's not helpful, right? We all do what we can and we try to get others to do it. And that is enough. Mm-hmm. We can't do everything, but we, we all need to do something. Yes. Yes. And that's, and, you know, yeah. that's, that's the message in climate club. Like the kids were not all doing the same thing, right? They were mm-hmm. choosing the thing they were passionate about, breaking it off and focusing on it. And everybody surrounded them and supported them on, on their individual projects. Yes, they all like, yeah, they all kind of, they did their part. Um, and that's kind of cli- climate club. Sure. It's a fictional story, but it's also the truth. We like, you shouldn't take it as a fictional story. And while technically the characters aren't true, the events are true. And it's it's the start of something. Like for instance, we, a climate club, it's giving you the tools that you need to start to go somewhere, to do something. But if you don't take it like that, it's, it's not gonna be helpful and the dominoes are just gonna fall down. And you need to, have new perspectives and that's why climate club is just a 10 out of 10 read everybody and that and also i'm gonna go to my next question now and this this has actually been a really interesting discussion i'm learning a lot and i know that all of you are probably learning something too about the environments about the domino trains yeah domino trains are more than just dominoes domino trains are also metaphors so um and was there someone who inspired you to become a writer a parent teacher author or role model Yes. Yeah, so I, I think um, many of us are kind of born writers, I guess. We were born full of stories and we just need to figure out how to get them out. Um, so I would say I was born, you know, just wanting to tell stories. I, I think when I was three, I probably told like just, you know, hour long rambling stories. I don't know what they were about, but they must have been very compelling to three-year-old me. But my parents both said like, you know, Carrie, likes to tell stories and so they would encourage me and they would say oh join this writing contest join this writer's guild and so they were very encouraging but but match that with my childhood authors with you know Judy Bloom and Beverly Cleary and um, the boxcar children series and you know I would be at my library constantly so I was internalizing other people's stories making up my own stories Um, but then I think I brought in my my journaling and I did a lot of writing in that way. So I think it was a, a, a mix of things, right? It wasn't one person or one book or one, you know, moment. It was just this beautiful, you know, um, world of books and writing and people cheering my writing and, and um, being able to share stories with other people. And, you know, I think many authors probably have the same story, but yeah, that's, I would say that was it. Well, the, many authors do have the same story, but we're all you. They're all unique in a way, and that's what I love about asking this question. And now that leads me to my final question: the question I ask every single one of my authors, or anybody in the book world that I interview. And I know that you've seen some of my interviews, so you know how it's going to go. If you could be or meet any literary character, fictional or real, any time period, just any place in general, who would it be and why? <laughs> Okay, this would probably be different 10 or 20 years ago, but I think um, after global crises, we always have a lot of fantasy books coming out. And I'm not a fantasy reader, I'm not a sci-fi reader, but I'm going to say, I think right now at this moment in time, I would love to be a hobbit. Because I wanna live in like a shire and a little house and a cozy little situation with a, with a stream and, and other hobbits and just kind of take a break from everything and, and snuggle into my hobbit house. So that's, that's what my heart is, is looking for right now. However, I wanted to ask you if I could change the question a little. I don't know if you're up for that, but, I, but the question to, to who would I want to meet because when I was thinking about this, I want to, I, I wouldn't want to be most of my idols because they had a really rough life and had to struggle a lot to, to get where they were. 
but I would want to meet an, a, a suffragist named Inez Milholland, who I'm kind of obsessed with, who lived in the 1910s and was a fierce activist. She was an incredibly strong woman. And in my opinion, she was the catalyst for eventually um, women getting the right to vote. So I've been researching her incessantly and I don't want to be her because she had a tough life, like many yeah. of her time, but I so desperately would love to spend an hour just talking to her. That would be so wonderful. And I also agree with your Hobbit statement. I think <laughs> it would be nice to be a Hobbit just in our own little community, living in the side of a mountain. I think that'd be a very fun experience. And yeah, you also- Knowing me, I'd end up like joining, you know, the fight for- Yeah. For, for the, you know, for the light. But mm -hmm. for a couple of days, just let me be a Hobbit. <laughs> yeah. And thank you so much for joining me today, Carrie. I've just had so much fun learning about climate change, ways we can help promote reading, and just the stories that you shared. I learned a lot. I know that everybody listening probably learned something too. And you're probably asking yourselves, how can I join this movement? How can I help stop climate change and do something? Well, be sure to check out Carrie Firestone's Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Her Twitter is at CLL Firestone. And also on Facebook, she is well, Carrie Firestone. She's Carrie Firestone on all forms of social media. And also check out her website, CarrieFirestoneBooks.com. I can't give you all the information, but I know that Carrie can. And you should check out her website and also all of her forms of social media because she's great. She is just great. I know I'm speaking fast, but seriously, I have to take a moment to just appreciate her and so should you. Because Carrie Firestone is probably one of my favorite authors, not just because her stories are thrilling, but also because they're true and because... She's a passionate author, and I know that a lot of authors are passionate about their works, but Carrie, she's something else, and she's not just writing about it. She's also going to events, promoting fundraisers. She's doing a lot, so I have to give her some credit because she is amazing, and also other ways to help out the literacy advocacy movements are donating to my brand new book drive, which, ju which just started yesterday. Woo! Um, there you can go to my Amazon wish list. The link is on my Twitter and you can find, you can donate books and help support classrooms in need. So what you can do is you can just buy one of one of many books, books that I've loved as a child and also that I've had the opportunity to interview the authors of. So that's one way you can support the literacy advocacy movements and also dress coded and climate club are on there. So you can also support Carrie Firestone in the process. So thanks so much for joining me today, everybody. I hope you have a great day and I hope you learned a lot because I know I did. Thank you, bye. Thank you.